You can be seated. We're going to be turning now to 2 Kings chapter 22. We'll start in the first verse and we'll read through the first part, chapter 23 to 23, verse 30. Today we come, as we draw ever nearer to the end of the book of Kings, we come to the last of the good kings of Judah on our quest for the good king in the line of David. We'll be coming this morning to King Josiah before we read of him, God's work in him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. It is mighty and powerful. It is your instrument by which you convert sinners into saints. You instruct us. You teach us. We pray that we would learn from this account of the great king Josiah as we look beyond him to the true king who is Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. 2 Kings 22, starting in the first verse. Josiah was eight years old and he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jediah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are acting faithfully. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hukiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. She said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I had spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste, and because you tore your, pro tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. 
Therefore I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the, man, from the, with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. The king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the pagan priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations, and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord and where women did weaving for Asherah. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the shrines at the gates at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which is on the left of the city gate, although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. He desecrated Topheth, which is in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire to Molech. He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz, and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces, and threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption. The one Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. Josiah smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles and covered the sites with human bones. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned on the altar to defile it in accordance with the word of the Lord, proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, What is that tombstone I see? The men of the city said, It marks the tomb of the man of God who came from, Ju from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared his bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. Just as he had done at Bethel, Josiah removed and defiled all the shrines at the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria that had provoked the Lord to anger. Josiah slaughtered all the 
<clears throat> priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he went back to Jerusalem. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence, as I removed Israel. And I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, There shall my name be. As for the other events of Josiah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed him at Megiddo. Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. King Josiah becomes king at the ripe old age of eight years old. His father, Amon, had been king for only two years, and then he had been murdered. And it's a very thinly veiled grace that Amon, his father, was murdered at the age of eight because Amon was an incredibly wicked man, and that meant Josiah only had eight years, a number of them, when he would not have been conscious and able to remember, were, were spent uh, being able to learn and adopt the practices and the habits of his wicked father. But the majority of the last chapter we looked at dealt with the wicked king, the worst of the kings of Israel and Judah, Manasseh. Manasseh had been a vile king, a wicked king, and he was so bad that he pushed the Lord past the point where he was willing any longer to be patient. And back there we saw that the Lord had said that he would bring a destruction on Judah and Jerusalem so terrible and so, so violent and so thorough that the ears of those who heard it would tingle. And so Judah had reached the point of no return when we come to King Josiah. Manasseh had pushed them to that point. Ammon hadn't made it any better, and so it's no surprise then that Amon finds himself dead as he's king of a country which is soon to find itself dead. But then we do have this great surprise. We have seemingly out of nowhere, in the midst of a curse which has been laid on the country, we have a good king. We have King Josiah, and he's not just a good king, he's a very, very, very good king. And we see that as we look back at verse 2 of chapter 22. Of Josiah, it is said, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Josiah is in, in very elite company here. 
There are only eight kings of Judah of whom it is said that they walked in the ways of the Lord, that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. There are only three kings of Judah, including Josiah, of whom it is said that he walked in all the ways of his father David. And there is only one king. If getting an A is walking the way of David, there is only one king who gets an A+. Because he turned neither to the right nor to the left for all the days of his life. Josiah is the ideal king. And we have in our, in our back of our minds, for those of you who have been trekking with us through the book of Kings, we have in the back of our minds the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy has much to say about what a king should do and shouldn't do, and what a king should be and shouldn't be. And if we go back to Deuteronomy 17, we, we see what the king is to do and to be in accordance with the law of God. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20. And when he, that is a new king, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You see, that language that we see in 2 Kings 22 is taken right out of Deuteronomy, that Josiah turns neither to the left hand nor to the right, but he walks faithfully in the law of the Lord all the days of his reign. No other king could have this said of him. Not even David could have this said of him. Josiah is the greatest of the kings who ever sat on David's throne, greater even in righteousness than David himself. And then we, as we move forward then, we see that Josiah earns this reputation in a number of ways. And you move into verses 3 to 7 and you see that Josiah earns this reputation by turning away from the sins of his father and his grandfather and his great-great-grandfather and instead he turns to the Lord and he begins collecting money from the people and the money is to be spent on rebuilding the temple, opening it once again for worship, restoring it to the glory that it had in the days of Solomon. But then we get to the most remarkable event, the most significant event of the reign of Josiah in verses 8 to 13. While the work is going on in the temple and it's being restored, they find a book. And they read the book and they immediately realize that this is the law of God which has been lost for the better part of a century during the time of Manasseh and of Ammon. And so as they read this book, they decide this is something which the king must hear. But you get a sense that they're a little anxious when they bring this book to the king. And understandably so. And when they bring the book to the king, they approach him and they, they kind of say, hey, your royal highness, your, your majesty, we've done everything you told us to do. And while we were doing the things that you told us to do, we, we found this book. And while we were doing that, we found this book as you told us to do, and now would you like it? And so Josiah has the book read, and when he hears it, he's terrified. He's terrified, he tears his robes, and he weeps. And he's terrified because the book that is rediscovered is the book of Deuteronomy. 
It had been missing for some time, and as the book is read to him, the book of Deuteronomy contains blessings for an obedient Israel in Judah and curses for a disobedient Israel in Judah. And Josiah knows good and well that his nation has been very disobedient and rebellious. And just a, a couple examples of these curses would be helpful, I think, for us to understand Josiah's fear. If you look at Deuteronomy 28, just a few selected verses should be on the screen behind me. The Lord says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kings of the earth, kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you astray. So Josiah, in his, in his grief and in his fear, is very justified. And so he does what any reasonable person should do. He, he turns to the Lord and he sends this, this delegation off to find a prophet, or more specifically, a prophetess, to go find the prophetess Huldah. Now, the, the prophets Jeremiah and Zephaniah were prophesying during, the, pro prophesying during this time as well. And why he didn't send for them and why he sent for Huldah isn't told to us. It could be because Zephaniah and Jeremiah always had bad news and maybe he was hoping for better news than what they had to offer. And so he sends them off to Huldah. And Huldah has good news and bad news. If you're like me, if somebody walks up to you and says, I have good news and I have bad news, which would you like first? You always answer bad news. Because otherwise you can't hear the good news because you're wondering what the bad news is going to be. And so Huldah has good news and she has bad news. And so she gives him the bad news first. And the bad news is, Josiah, if you're wondering if it's too late, the answer is yes. It is too late. The Lord will not turn away from the things he promised to do in the time of your grandfather Manasseh. He will not spare your sons. He will not spare your kingdom. But the good news is that he will spare you. You will die in peace. You will not have to see all that is going to happen to your kingdom, all of its devastation, all of the humiliation of my people. You will not have to see with your own eyes. So Josiah receives that news. The messengers go back to the king. They tell him, yes, it's too late, but you're not going to have to see it. And then the chapter ends with just kind of us hanging there. What is Josiah going to do now that he knows that it's too late? Now, sports are an easy thing to waste an awful lot of time on. But there is something noble and something remarkable about sports that is very difficult to find anywhere else in the world. I remember watching the Olympics a number of years ago. I don't remember what Olympics it was or who it was, but I remember watching the Women's Figure Skating Championships. And it really is incredible what those young women can do on a couple of very narrow blades on ice. I can hardly walk on ice without falling, and I'm very afraid of falling after shattering my elbow just a few months ago. So watching these young women on these, on these skates is incredible, but I, I remember very vividly that there was this particular young woman who made it all the way to the Olympics, 
and she's doing her routine and it's going very nicely until she does a jump and she slips. And the look on her face said everything you needed to know about what she was thinking. I'm not going to meddle. I can't win. In that moment, all the things that she had aspired to and worked towards for all these years was gone, just like that. But she finished her routine. She finished it for the sake of finishing well. She finished it because it was noble and it was dignified. She finished it because it was right to finish. Perhaps it would be good for us to think about what we, what we would do. What would you do if what you had worked towards all your life, your greatest hope, your greatest ambition, what would you do if just in an instant you realized that it was never going to be realized, that it was gone? How would you respond? Or perhaps like Josiah, what if you are told by a prophetess of God himself, what if you are told in that very moment that your dreams, that your dreams for your children for your children's children, that your dream for this kingdom that you are king over, that your dreams will not come true. That all there is is bad news coming in the future. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you pray, no matter how thoroughly you do a reformation, no matter how good a king you are, it won't matter in the end. What would you do? I think perhaps... I think perhaps our piety and our love for God can be best demonstrated in times like that. I think our true piety and love for God is best demonstrated in how we act towards God in moments and in times when we have very little to gain in the terms of this world. So the question is then, how would Josiah act? And the face of this Mostly bad news, Josiah embarks upon the greatest reformation that the kingdom of Israel had ever seen. And the reformation can be divided up into, into three portions. The, the first comes in verses, uh, just the first three verses, verses 1, 2, and 3. Josiah receives this news from the prophetess, and even though it's bad news, he immediately gathers all the people together. And what does he do? But he has this book of the law read to them. This is the same book which he himself had heard and torn his robes and wept over. But he doesn't hide it from his people. Instead, he has this book of the law read, and then he himself covenants, and he has the people covenant that they together are going to keep the Lord's covenant. He brings them to a state of faithfulness. And then we see this faithfulness worked out as you move into the, the second portion of the Reformation, which comes to us in verses 4 to 20. And we see that, that Josiah is a man of action. Right? The first action is he brings all the people. He has the law read to them. That's in accordance with the instructions of Deuteronomy. The second part of the action is that he begins purging the land of all idolatry. And it's really an incredible list. If you go back and you read through chapter 23, it's, it's an incredible list. Just, just note the things that Josiah does away with. He does away with idol articles, pagan priests, Asherah poles, shrine prostitutes, high places, shrines, infanticide centers, astral worship, that is the worship of sun and moon and stars, things like omens and horoscopes, pagan altars, and Solomon's idol centers. All of those things are gone. And when he does that, he's, he's rolling back all the wicked idolatry of his father, his grandfather, and his great-great-grandfather. 
But it's not just them. He even goes back and undoes idolatry begun 300 years earlier in the days of Solomon. Remember that Solomon married all these foreign women, and in those marriages he fell into their idolatries. And he began to make altars and shrines for them to worship their pagan gods. And when Josiah comes, 300 years later, those shrines are still there. So Josiah does away even with those shrines. He has no regard even for the things of the great king Solomon. But then look at the flurry of verbs as well. Josiah is a very busy king, busy about the Lord's work. Just let me list for you some of these verbs. Josiah removes, he burns, he does away with, he takes away, he burns, he grinds, he scatters over graves, he tears down, he breaks down, he desecrates, he removes, he burns, he pulls down, he removes, he smashes, he throws, he desecrates, he smashes, he cuts down, and he covers with bones. You get the idea, don't you? You get the idea that there is no length and nothing which Josiah will not do to do away with anything and everything which would compete for the heart and soul and devotion with God of God's people. Josiah is zealous for the Lord. And then tucked neatly into this passage is something that is, that is very strikingly important. And that is that Josiah does not only do this in Judah. But he goes into the northern kingdom of Israel as well. And he goes into that northern kingdom and he enacts this purge, this righteous purge. And that tells us something about Josiah. Josiah is not only a righteous king, but he's a very powerful king. He begins to exert influence over territory as one king, as David's heir, that none of David's heir had exerted for 300 years since Solomon. He is king not only of the south, but he is king of the north. And the whole promised land begins once again to go back to the way it was in David's day, which was to be a united, God-fearing kingdom. And so in his, in his foray into the, into the north, he comes upon a particular altar. And to understand the significance of this altar, we need to hop in the Wayback Machine. We hop in the Wayback Machine and we go back to the early part of the divided kingdom. King Solomon had blown it with his pagan wives and the Lord spared him like he's going to spare Josiah from seeing the worst of it. But then Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king and Rehoboam is a fool. He listens to the youth group instead of to the elders. And in listening to the youth group instead of to the elders, the kingdom is torn in two. And Jeroboam becomes king of the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam remains king of Judah. And Jeroboam has a couple of options. One, he can continue to worship the Lord, or two, he can create his own cult. And Jeroboam, though he has a promise from God that if he will worship the Lord, he will have a dynasty like David's, Jeroboam refuses and he creates his own cult. He makes these golden bulls, and he says, Behold, O Israel, your gods who brought you out of Egypt, and then he makes this altar. And he has this big party, this big cultic party. It's a dedication service for the altar. And Jeroboam is, is going up to this altar to dedicate this altar to his false pagan gods. And then there's a party crasher. Jeroboam would have seen him as a party pooper, perhaps. And we read of this story in 1 Kings 13, verses 1 and 2. The author of Kings says, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. 
And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. A king shall be born, Josiah by name. You know, it's been almost 300 years. It's been 15 months in our lives, but it's been a lot of time in their lives. And even 300 years later, God is able to keep his word. Jeroboam's cult has finally come to its end. His altar is going to be desecrated with human bones. And Jeroboam's false faith dies, but God never dies, and God's word never fails. And so Josiah, the king, comes to do exactly what this prophet had said was going to be done. Isn't God faithful to keep his word, even if we must wait hundreds of years? And so to finish it off, Josiah has these pagan priests slaughtered, and they're burned upon these altars. And I said, well, why has he got to burn these human bones? That seems kind of disgusting. And the reason is because altars that are broken down are easily built again. But in the pagan mind, if human bones were burned on an altar, it was permanently defiled. It could never be used again. And so, so Josiah is doing everything possible to make sure that idolatry never comes in among the people of God again. And so again, you get the idea that Jeroboam wants his people to have nothing whatsoever to do with idols. And that's in accordance with the word of the Lord. You go back to Deuteronomy 7, and the Lord says that you should put to death anyone who leads you into idolatry like these pagan priests. And you go into Deuteronomy 13, or, or rather, that's Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 7, verses 5 and 6, said that all these idols should be destroyed. Just listen to this, Deuteronomy 7, 5 and 6. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Josiah is faithful to God's commands. He is faithful to a T. But true faith does not consist only in destruction, but it consists also in construction. And in Josiah's case, in reconstruction. And so Josiah does away with all the wicked things, and then he begins to restore the righteous things. And he begins to restore them by celebrating the Passover. The Passover was the Jewish festival, the Jewish feast, where they remembered that the Lord had passed over their houses in Egypt. When the angel of the Lord went through Egypt to slay the firstborn of all the people of the land, the Israelites were told, the Hebrews were told, if you paint the blood of a perfect lamb on your doorposts, the angel of the Lord will pass over your house and your sons will be saved. And so the, the people of Israel remembered this in the Passover. But in time, they forgot the Passover. So the author says that not since the days of the judges was a Passover kept like the one that Josiah keeps. Not in David's time, not in 40 years of David, not in 40 years of Solomon, not in Hezekiah's day. There was a Passover, but not like this. Not since the time of Samuel, the great prophet and priest, was there a Passover kept like this one. And the people remembered God and heard from God as we have this morning, both in word and in sacrament, in the days of Josiah. But the cherry on top 
so to speak, of the author's love and affection for Josiah comes in verses 24 and 25. I'll just read verse 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. No other king was like him. None before and none after. Not Hezekiah, not David, not Solomon, not Asa, not Jehoshaphat, not Amaziah, not Azariah, none of them. None of them were as good as King Josiah. And to really emphasize just how good Josiah is, the author of Kings essentially quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, what Jesus calls the greatest commandment and applies it to Josiah. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That was Josiah. I would like to think that if I was the king in Judah, that that would be said of me. The highest of praise the scripture has to offer. But it was too late. It was too late. What the Lord had said through Huldah was going to be. What the Lord had prophesied in the days of Manasseh was going to be. Judah was going to be destroyed. The people were going to be taken into exile. And Jerusalem was going to be burned. It was too late. And the thing is that Josiah knew it was too late. Josiah knew it was too late, and he did it anyways. He knew it was too late. He, he trusted the word. He trusted the prophet. He knew that what God says is true. He had a fear of the Lord. He, he knew for, for certain. He knew that it was too late, and yet he still did it. I don't know about you, but I find that to be compelling. He knew that it wasn't going to make a difference in the end. But he still found it to be worthwhile to serve God simply for the sake of serving God. He knew that it wasn't going to save his family. It wasn't going to save his kingdom. But God was still worth serving anyways. I think Ralph Davis says it well, and I'll quote him and one other scholar. He says, Josiah's is a faithfulness that does not confuse obedience with pragmatism. And so pushes on. Not because it will change anything, but simply because God demands it. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you realize the ship has sailed on your dreams, but God is still worthy of being obeyed. Another scholar said that this way, S.G. DeGraff, Josiah showed a diligence unmatched by any king before or after him. He did not declare that there was no point in Reformation since it could not save Judah anyways. He wanted to go ahead with the Reformation solely for the sake of the honor and the righteousness of the Lord. The Lord has a right to be served, even if our service does not bring about our salvation. I hope your God is this big. And I hope your God is this worthy and that he is this glorious. I hope your God is big enough and worthy enough 
and glorious enough that even if you stand to gain almost nothing in the ways of the world, that he is still worth serving. That he is still worth worshiping. It didn't save Josiah. Josiah went off to an ill-advised battle with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he died. He's buried in relative peace. He didn't see what was going to come. And then soon after that, as we'll see very quickly next week, his kingdom was going to die as well. All of that, all that reformation, all that flurry of activity, and at the end we have a dead king in a bloody chariot and a doomed kingdom. And we're left with some questions. We spent 45 chapters searching for the king God promised David. And Josiah isn't even that king. Even though he is, according to Deuteronomy, the ideal king. And one must wonder then, if even Josiah isn't that king, then how great must that king be? If that king is going to excel and exceed Josiah in faithfulness and in zeal, and in glory, and in power, how great must that king be? As we're reading the book of Kings forward, it seems almost impossible that there could be a king greater than Josiah. We have seen one miserable failure after another. How could there be a king greater than this, even greater than David? But as we look back at kings, as we do from this side of the cross in the empty tomb, it becomes very easy to see that Christ the King excels even Josiah in every possible way. Moving forward, they waited. Looking backwards, we rejoice. God, as we work through this book of Kings, our hearts cannot help but grieve for the people of Israel and Judah as they are reigned over by kings of various kinds, and even the best of their kings would meet their death and make changes that would not last. We grieve for them, even while we are thankful for their hope as they waited for the true king. God, we are so thankful that we have not only the hope of the true King, but we know his name, that his name is Jesus, that he sits on heaven's throne, that one day he returns dressed in white with a robe dipped in blood, with a sword which comes forth from his mouth, with which he will strike down the nations that oppose your people. And he will do righteousness, and he will do justice, and he will reign in peace, giving joy and salvation to his people, not just for 31 years, but forever and ever. And we are glad. Glad doesn't do it justice. We are incredibly grateful that he is our king, and that our hope is in him. 
And we pray in his name. Amen.